0: I'd never met an author until I was an adult certainly it just didn't occur to me that somebody who had the life that I had which was being the daughter of teachers in Birmingham would be able to do something like write books I remember interviewing Fran Lebowitz the American humorist a long time ago now for Radio 4 and I said when did you know you wanted to be a writer and she said the minute that I realized that books weren't like trees Mm -hmm. and that people made them and I thought Oh that's really that's really interesting because that obviously came to you really young and for me it was much later you know I liked writing kind of creatively at school but I don't think it particularly occurred
1: to me that that was a job No no <laughs> With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season six of Bookshelfy, the podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. Join me and my incredible guests as we talk about the books you'll be adding to your 2023 reading list. Today I am joined by author, broadcaster, comedian and classicist Natalie Haynes. Natalie is a Women's Prize for Fiction 2020 shortlisted author for her novel In a Thousand Ships, which retells the story of the Trojan War from an all-female perspective. Her book Stone Blind, which I absolutely loved, tackles the story of medusa through a feminist lens and her latest book divine might goddesses in greek myth is a female-centered look at olympus and the furies she is a self-declared classics nerd who has made her career reinventing greek myths for a modern audience through her books stand-up radio and television welcome to the podcast natalie thanks for having me I hear you've come from kickboxing this morning. I
0: have, yeah. Which I like to start the day with combat. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> just, then the rest of the day, when people try and hit me in the face, at least like, from practising.
1: You ready? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm um, keen for that. Oh, that's a great way to start the day, and, and then to sort of segue into chatting about books. It's just a bit of everything. That's literally every day
0: for me. I don't know what to say to you. Yeah, it's always basically combat, and then books, and
1: sometimes they overlap. Is, is is reading i mean where does it sit for you in what in what you need to get out of everyday is it an escape is it a grounding i mean obviously there'll be a lot of research as well yeah
0: that's the main thing at the moment certainly because i'll be starting a new novel Mm, in the next couple of months mm. when the tour for Divine Might has calmed down a bit then I'll have to start writing again because that's the sort of seasons for me. So yeah, I'm in research mode at the moment uh, or at least I, I was in cram writing the tour show mode <laughs> until last week. Um, I've got it all under control, don't worry everyone. Um, but uh, yeah, now I'm back to be able to read on trains instead of going, huh, 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 which is what I was doing for quite a while before that. And when you do read on trains, yes. what are you reading? I am... Currently reading Apollonius of Rhodes's Argonautica, um, which is a poem, an epic poem, quite a short epic poem, if you can have such a thing. Which I last read when I was uh, an undergraduate, I think, and I've dipped into it since then because I wrote a chapter about Medea in Pandora's Jar, my last nonfiction book before Divine Might, but I haven't read the whole thing in one go. So um, yeah, and I'm going back to the Greek which slows me down quite
1: quite a lot, it's like, oh, just, just for ease. Just, yeah, just, just <laughs> to agree. check. Yeah. Well, because
0: there's that thing <laughs> where, barriers. I know, if, if you want to rework sources, and I do, you know, I did it with a Thousand Ships and before that with Children of Jocasta and obviously with Stoneblind, although with Stoneblind it was much harder uh, because there were so few literary sources to use. I don't want it to be the version of that Greek or Latin text that has been rewritten by not in a mean way a man in the first half of the 20th century because that's going to be their misogynistic patriarchal worldview you know perhaps unintentionally but it's still there and i don't want that in my brain when i'm trying to think about the
1: story so i like to go back to the greek even though it slows me right down when you return to something having read it originally as an undergrad and i remember because i did distant yeah. distant past <laughs> but the, the, when I read things because I had to for yeah. my degree and I, I was doing languages so often I was reading them in translation just to get through them just so I could write my essay yes
0: I, I, I well know your pain yeah. don't worry
1: yeah you, you, you return to them maybe have a bit more time to read them but also with just a little bit more love in my heart because I, i'm not kind of you're pressure. not on a deadline i'm not on a deadline anymore yeah. have you have you felt that shift voice on, on a deadline? deadline are you kidding me, still <laughs> me? I've still on half a million words in the last six years <laughs>
0: no i just don't know Nothing's what it's changed. like don't know what it's like if anything i have worse essay crises okay. now than i did then because then i think i had to write eight essays in eight weeks every term so it was quite tight although obviously they were short terms so Crimea river passed me um but now yeah i've I write a book in theory every 18 months but every year I also make a series of the radio shows stand up for the classics for Radio 4 and that takes me a couple of yeah. months I'm the only person writing it the only researcher the only writer it's just it's all just me <laughs> and Mary our brilliant producer of course but I have to do the writing and then I'm on tour with whichever book is out at any given time usually about three months so in every 12 months I only have seven to write anything, so every eighteen months sounds like a lot to write a book, and then you realise it's closer to. It doesn't to nine. even. It doesn't it's even like, oh, sound God. like a lot to write a book, to be honest. <laughs> to be
1: honest, do do you get a chance to read purely, purely for pleasure? Is that even a thing? Because I guess any any bit of reading could lead to inspiration. It could lead to that's an idea. the thing. You can't yeah.
0: afford to doesn't not exist. be reading for fun, and yet at the same time, it it's a it's a bit of a challenge. I, I think there was a more difficult time to do it in my life was probably. 2012 13 because in 2012 I judged the Women's Prize or the Orange Prize as it was then 2013 I judged the Booker Prize and then 2014 I judged the Independent Fiction Prize which is now the International Booker folded in so I read about 350 novels in I don't know 18-20 months something like that and at the end of it I remember standing in front of my bookshelves and looking at them and saying to my then partner what do I like? And he was like, I don't know. Because you just, you're always having to read for work like that. And it's just like, I remember liking crime fiction. Oh yeah, maybe go for a murder mystery. And then of course, because crime writers are incredibly productive, there were loads of Writers that I really liked who'd brought yeah, out like nine, nine books.
1: books. <laughs> <laughs> so so many books! <laughs> so I was really pleased. It opens your eyes to this whole other world. I don't think I'd ever really read a thriller until I judged the Women's Prize. Right. And then all of a sudden, cause I, I not that I'd looked down on them. I just thought they weren't for me. Yeah. All of a sudden, my eyes were opened. And I realised all of these authors had these massive backlists. I was like, they well, how really I do. get through these now? Yeah. Because I want to. I feel like I have to. But I know that feeling. I went gradually and say, I loved judging it. But I went gradually and say, there's post-its all over my flat. Yeah, Saying some really arsey things like, oh, it destroyed and restored me. Like, But it had to be done. I
0: coped better with the Women's Prize than the Booker, truthfully. So if they ask you, I'm just giving you a warning. I loved it. But the day I finished Book 50... Fifty books arrived in the post, and I read 151 books in 204 days. And I always really insist on remembering the 151st because it was a thousand and four pages long. And the day it arrived, I knelt down and wept in my hall. <laughs> it's like, like I can't read anymore. It was like being bludgeoned with a book every. I would get up at five, read a novel, and then start work because it was the only way to get through the days. And I was so insane with lack of sleep and too many words. I remember turning up to a press day and thinking I wouldn't be able to go, but I really wanted to, at the British Museum. And they were doing their Pompeii and Herculaneum exhibition. Um, So I guess that must have been 2013. And I turned up, I'd read the novel, got up early, read the novel, was fully insane, walked into town, because that's the only exercise I ever got, and got there. It was a really cold day. And I was like, hello, I'm here for the press thing. And they were like, "Okay, Natalie. And they looked slightly sort of, unnerved and I was like maybe I've done something wrong and I was like am I early and they went oh yeah yeah you're two hours early I'm like okay sorry should I go and read a book somewhere and they were like no you can go so I got to go around on my own that was my it's reward for being result. insane I know yeah. What a tremendous
1: win for me! And a few years later, you took up kickboxing so that you could be attacked by hand rather than by, bludgeoned by a book. Exactly. Yeah. Because
0: this way, it's so much safer. I yes, think getting so. kicked in the head. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, yeah. Well, let's talk about the first book that you brought today for Bookshelfy, which is *The Dark is Rising* by Susan Cooper. Oh my goodness! <laughs> *The Dark is Rising* is a series of fantasy books for children and young adults by Susan Cooper. Technically, cheating by picking a series and not one title, but I will we'll... pick
0: the second. Okay. Uh, the actual Dark is Rising book. I was um, going to let you have this one. But okay, well then in that case, everyone should read all of them. All of them. But if you're only going to read one, I pick the second in the series, which is not like me because normally I'm very serialistic about things, mm. but they're standalone until later. Mm. So it's okay to read uh,
1: Dark is Rising without having read Oversea Under Stone. Rising. It has different characters in Book it. two, yeah. Well, the series itself, published between 1965 and 1977, these books depict a struggle between forces of good, the lights, and evil. The Dark, drawing upon ancient legends, mythology and folklore. Let's go straight in with book two then. So why are you picking
0: that? It's probably the book I have read the most times in my life. It's set around just it's set just before Christmas, um, in a very cold winter. And Will is one of he's the youngest of masses of siblings, uh, not all fully present at the start of the book. Uh his brother Stephen is away. Um, and it's his birthday at midwinter and the thing he wishes for is snow and the snow begins to fall and the dark rises and Will discovers, I don't want to spoil this book because it's so wonderful, Will discovers very early on that uh, he is going to be needed to fight this terrifying force. These are myths which is not at all my specialist area which is Greek myth uh, or Roman myth to a, a lesser degree but these myths of the British Isles which allow things like Hearn the hunter and this sort of sense that that winter is a deeply powerful time for despair which i think is something that is it's quite hard to relate to when you're in the southern mediterranean where it just the, the dark and the cold just yeah. don't have the same effect it's just the most extraordinary i'm trying not to say illuminating because it sounds like a pun but it does make you see that the sort of retreat from growth, the retreat from light and joy that comes in the winter is sort of a part of the process. And that by doing that, by kind of retreating in that way, you can and only then perhaps summon up the strength to, to rise and fight and and be the
1: forces of good once again. When did you first read this?
0: I was really quite small. My mum was an English teacher before I was born and then she went into adult education. So we had a house full of books that she had read or read and taught and so I was pretty young I think when I first read The Dark is Rising and I was just so beguiled by it you know her language of place is absolutely incredible the geography is small you know it's it's local it doesn't go very far from this particular spot um, in the icy winter of Buckinghamshire but it it's so detailed you know she really understands the the outside I mean fantastically so given that the author Susan Cooper had moved to the US before she wrote it, so it's in a way I think it's a love letter to home. So it's stuck in my memory ever since I read it every Christmas. Oh really?
1: Yeah, of course. And you read it at that time, like obviously for for a reason. It's, it's evocative of what's happening around you. Yeah, and it's a sort of it's that winter that you don't very
0: often get anymore because yeah, the climate has changed. It, yeah. But when the book is set, when the book was written, snowy winters, snowy Christmases were not at all a surprise so it's this sense of of it being everything is normal and then suddenly really abnormal so at the beginning of the book the family is all kind of chattering and jabbering in the kitchen and it's all noisy and suddenly the radio screeches when will goes near it and it doesn't this doesn't normally happen and then the dogs get really kind of edgy around him and you know they're his dogs and so he's really sort of upset so he goes to feed the rabbits and the rabbits are sort of cowering away from him and he knows something is wrong and I think that sense of the sort of horrible uncanny that you can create with these I mean just really small scenes where she just really nails that sense that something Something is wrong, and yeah. the animals can sense it. The sort of static is in the air, and you know something's going to happen, but we don't yet know what it is.
1: So you read this first at quite a young age. Yeah, I was probably about eight, I think. Uh, and were you a big reader? I mean, you said you were. Yeah, your God, I was a like a machine. Teacher, right. Yeah, we had a
0: house full of books. My dad was a history teacher. Okay. Uh, my mum had been an English teacher, and my grandmother worked at a bookshop. Right. So yeah, I had a constant supply. And my grandmother, she worked in the children's books bit of what was then Hudson's Books, and then became a Dylan's. Anyone remember Dylan's and the distant past, and then it became a Waterstones, and now I think it's the Apple Store. (laughs) So Birmingham has gone through the full uh, circle of evolution there, in a way. And so the book reps, you know, the people who go round bookshops to say, "Would you like to stock this book? It's great. Would you like to stock that book? It's great." Those people came in with, you know, proof copies. I don't I didn't think I even realised that proof copies were a different thing from a regular book at the time. So there were things like Dick King-Smith, who wrote The Sheep Pig, which became the film Babe. I had one of his books called The Queen's Nose, I think, which is about a sort I of enchanted 50 pence yeah. piece. And I didn't realise there was ever a different cover. You know, I had the proof copy cover, which was yeah. just sort of, I think it was plain purple plain lilac colour I think with a picture of 50 pence on it at least that's how I remember it vividly so I've probably invented that memory but these reps always brought my grandmother more and more books because they knew she'd got grandchildren who would gobble them up and so
1: yeah and and was that what sparked your interest in in mythology and in wanting to, to to tell stories write stories as well as you know consume them I don't think exactly because I was quite a lot older than
0: that before I realized that people like me could write books I I think I'd I'd never met an author until I was an adult certainly it just didn't occur to me that somebody who had the life that I had which was being the daughter of teachers in Birmingham would be able to do something like write books I remember interviewing Fran Lebowitz the American humorist a long time ago now for Radio 4 and I said when did you know you wanted to be a writer and she said the minute that I realized that books weren't like trees Mm -hmm. and that people made them and I thought Oh, that's really that's really interesting because that obviously came to you really young, and for me it was much later. You know, I liked writing kind of creatively at school, but I don't think it particularly occurred to me that that was a job
1: no no same i, I remember um it wasn't until I, we were quite lucky the author david armand yes of came course. Yeah. he came to our school in newcastle that's what you want and he came and and i guess he was talking about it was Kids wilderness and skellig yeah skellig's um, a terrific book yeah. isn't it and i was like oh it's it's a person it's yeah, a person they made those words he made those words he's yeah. from newcastle like us yeah. and it was such a light bulb moment yeah yeah um but you do need to have that realisation, otherwise he, of course you think that these books just grow on trees, these these proof coffees, it just yeah. pop, pop up in the library. Yeah, of course. And it seems so strange
0: to me now not to have not to have that kind of I know that people expect me to say, yes, I was this, you know, very bookish child I and knew. I always wanted to be a writer. <laughs> and I was a very bookish child and read books constantly. And yet it never occurred to me that the act of being a writer was an extension of
1: the act of being a reader. Well your second book Shabby book is a work of absolute genius. It's a masterpiece. The murder of Roger Ackroyd by Christie. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it great? Published in 1926, this was Christie's third novel to feature Hercule Poirot, and is considered to be one of her greatest, and also most controversial mysteries. It breaks the rules of a traditional it mystery. It leads to Poirot being utterly startled as he investigates the overdose of Widow Ferrars and the murder of her fiancé Roger Ackroyd less than 24 hours. Later, why did you choose this? Why do you love it so much?
0: Well, two reasons. I was a huge Christie nut growing up in my teens. I think it's hard not to be patronizing about her writing if you say that, but I think she does and does deliberately use quite simple language to tell quite complicated stories um, or quite complicated plots. Perhaps I think that's part of why she's been so successfully, you know, translated into dozens and dozens of languages. Why she's never out of print, and they are really easy books to read and so as a teenager I essentially moved from children's books to Murder Mysteries and to Christie to Dorothy L Sayers to Marjorie Allingham to Niomarsh. Marsh and I think there's there's something so satisfying about those kind of golden age crime fiction novels because essentially what you have is this extremely neat world which was both totally alien to me and totally familiar you know set in this past that wasn't my past but there was certainly within the lifespan of my grandparents for example although my grandmother was Flemish um so it it wasn't her background and my grandfather you know uh, painted cars in Birmingham so it certainly wasn't his (laughs) But, but this sense that there was this kind of idealized 20s or 30s with obviously the sort of overspill of the of the first world war but with no sense of the impending fear of the second and Christie's writing is really clever you know even when it looks like the book is in the 30s often it's sort of the 50s you know the 50s are sort of being disguised as the past in their own way yeah the wars are always slightly withdrawn from the Mm. from the front even though of course Poirot has survived the first world war so you have this very very neat world and then it's suddenly thrown into chaos the murder makes everything break and so people's secrets are found out they start lying because they are trying to protect not themselves for having committed a crime but their privacy their you know secret desires the things that they want or fear and then gradually and inevitably order is replaced the detective essentially is god in the world of the murder mystery and we as the reader. Are following his steps as he and it is a him in in this instance and obviously Miss Marple just as joyous for me but Roger Ackroyd is such a fantastic novel precisely because Christy knows the rules so well she literally makes the rules or jointly makes the rules with other great crime writers of the era and then she breaks them and she does it over and over mm-hmm. again actually I think people often dismiss her it's a source of ongoing irritation to me that we treat for example Ian Fleming as a great British novelist and Agatha Christie as something sort of safe and chocolate boxy it's like one Fleming is obsessed with brand names and is so trivial and vain but anyway and two Christie is so, it's only because she's so productive I think that people yeah. Underestimate her. To be fair, I think the same is true of Woodhouse. She makes it look easy, and so people think it must have been easy, but yeah, try writing one. They're really difficult. And with Roger Ackroyd, she takes the rules that you expect her to follow, and she does follow them, but in a way so specific that she can get away with murder. <laughs> and it's just <laughs> magical. And, you know, she does it. I, I don't want to spoil very many of these books, for people. I don't want to spoil Roger Ackroyd, but, you know, she does it where she takes examples where everyone is the murderer or sometimes no one is the murderer the detective is the murderer there's uh, one where a child a child is the murderer and this is Agatha, a cozy chocolate boxy agatha christie where a small child turns out to be a homicidal maniac and you're like yeah absolutely. she's the least sentimental writer i think partly because she'd worked in a pharmacy i guess um, so she she knew quite a lot about poison she was really interested in them in a relatively cerebral way i would assume But also, you know, she was really interested in the past. She married an archaeologist. And so she has this very forensic kind of attitude to the world and to trying to make stories around artefacts, which after all is what archaeologists are essentially doing. I don't know, she just has this fantastic capacity to take the trivial and make it momentous within a story which seems like it could be very slight, but actually has a lot more
1: weight than I think people assume. When it comes to storytelling and creating stories out of artefacts, out Mm. of what we know. Um, Why do you love Greek mythology so much? (laughs) Because it's
0: great. (laughs) The thing about Greek mythology is that the unit of currency is a human life, right? So there are lots of types of myth where everything happens on a really grand scale. You know, you have a gigantic bird or a gigantic snake or a gigantic tree. And it's like, yeah, absolutely... But with Greek myth, it's incredibly human. It's incredibly human focused. So I suppose you could argue that it's the most, appropriately, the most narcissistic type of myth. But even the gods are pretty human in their petulance, their, you know, temper tantrums. They're super powerful, but they have no self control. They're like toddlers. And so human lives are always in play, they're always at stake. And when the gods decide to, you know, turn on a person, as happens to, you know, Oedipus, for example, and Jocasta, then there's always the possibility that that they will be caught up in the same way. You know, Zeus loses his own son in in the Iliad. He loses Sarpedon. And that's not, you know, it's devastating, but he still has to kind of live with it. You know, we have a lot of texts of Greek myth, far more than we have perhaps of quite a lot of other myth cycles and myth cultures. But generally, there is something so profound. You know, these archetypes are so profound. There's a reason why Freud was drawn to Greek myth over, say, Norse myth. And I think partly that's to do with the slight snobbishness of the time in which Freud was living, where, you know, the Greeks were celebrated as being this sort of high-minded culture which uh, i mean you know the greek miracle as people used to call it and it's like well i'm not really that comfortable with that the greeks of course were tremendous magpies and of course stole stuff from all over the place they got their alphabet and and monetary ideas from the phoenicians for example the phoenicians were really were geniuses um, but we don't have much writing about them so we credit the greeks with a lot of their discoveries and things but the things that they did have were the ability to tell stories in an absolutely unparalleled way and although we've lost the vast majority of Greek literature perhaps as much as 99% of it what we have is just extraordinary and discoveries are still being made relatively recently you know we've got from Sappho's nine books of lyric poetry we've got three poems yeah how mad is that these one of those was was I was going to say discovered but I think presented is probably more accurate in 2014 so not just within my lifetime but within a very young person's lifetime quantity of Sappho poems has gone
1: up by 50% <laughs> so, so we've done really well <laughs> Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people Bailey's is the perfect adult treat whether shaken in a cocktail, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book Check out Bailey's.com for our favourite Bailey's recipes. Hi, I'm Sam Baker, and
0: welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no holds barred truth about being a woman post 40. I started The Shift because I was so tired of the absence of older women's voices. Where had all the women over 40 gone? I mean, seriously, if you want to walk about in your pajamas for the rest of your life, we're invisible. Each episode, I speak to an inspiring woman about her shift.
1: I feel very strong and think I genuinely don't care what anybody thinks of me.
0: Join me every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts.
1: The third book that you're bringing today is A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Isecki. That's a great book. It certainly is, and she is an absolutely exquisite writer. This is an autobiographical novel published in 2013, which went on to be shortlisted for that year's Man Booker Prize and translated into 28 languages. It tells the stories of 16-year-old Nao in Tokyo who is documenting her great-grandmother's life as a Buddhist nun and Ruth, a novelist living on a remote island on the other side of the Pacific, who is pulled into Nao's life in a way she never expected. What is it about this book and and Ruth's writing style that's so captivating? Well... I was on the booker
0: panel that chose this book for the shortlist. And so I wasn't kidding when I said I read 151 novels in 204 days. And there were moments, and it's true of every one of the shortlisted books from that year, where you opened a book and thought, oh, thank God. Mm. It's like sinking into a warm bath. You say, oh, my God, you can just really write. Everything is going to be fine. You can really really right and so what you got what i got anyway from reading tale for the time being and you get the book so early you know this yeah you get a a proof copy long before the book is out so you can't you're not going on other people's buzz or other people's ideas (laughs) no reviews no there's nothing you're just properly going for it i read it as i say you know it was surrounded by books both on my shelves and in my head and it was such a glorious kind of technicolor piece of writing. Now's diary, you know, now has, has grown up in the US and then they have to move back to, her parents have to move back, but for her it's new to Japan. And it's just magnificent. It's just a magnificent piece of writing and it's intercut with this much more kind of sedately paced story of Ruth Azeki, who finds the diary near her home in Canada and is trying to work out if now is real and who she might be and if she's in trouble. And so it has a sort of thriller structure, but as is the way with Zeki's writing always, it's the interleaving of stories that makes it so compelling, actually. It's not the plot. It's the way that the two different stories are layered into one another. She's a super smart writer.
1: Mm. Well, she won the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2022 with The Book of Form and Emptiness. Um, You've, of course, been a judge for the prize in 2012 and also shortlisted for the prize in 2020 with 1,000 ships. Was it like being up for an award that you've been on the inside of? It's nice
0: because you know how lucky you are. That's the thing. And the thing about the Women's Prize, unless it's changed dramatically since I judged it, is the chair of judges reads everything, but all the other books are divided up. So each judge reads about a fifth of the submissions. And so you know that in order to make the long list in the first place, at which point everyone then starts to read everything, you really do only have two goes. you know, the chair who's reading everything so they're pretty busy and the person who gets your book. And that's just, you know, I have no idea how it's allotted and when I judged it, there was certainly no bit where you could say, oh, I think I'm going to like this one or I'm looking forward to that or anything. So you know it's luck a bit. You know, you have to write a book that people hopefully are going to enjoy in large numbers but you also have to get the right person on the right day because you know how this goes sometimes you know the book is wonderful but it's not the right book for you at that point and you don't know who's going to be judging and you don't know what their taste is going to be and you don't know if you'll fulfill it so I knew both times I was long listed for ships and for stone blind that I had you know I'd rolled a dice and got a really happy six both times and it's quite hard talking about it with people outside of the book world I think because they think you're being sort of mock humble when you say yeah I'm really lucky Um, they're like no you wrote a really great book it's like babe I wrote a bunch of books (laughs) they didn't all get as lucky as this so yeah I was really really aware of what a treat it was but also it was really strange because my year was the pandemic year so the last party I went to before the world closed was the long list party in 2020. And then by the time I got the email saying that it was shortlisted, I think I'd just done like an an online kickboxing class on my own in my flat. And you get the mail early, you know, like a couple of weeks before, three weeks maybe before it's announced. At the time, of course, we didn't know when the prize would be or even kind of if the prize would be. And my editor sent me this email saying you know I've got this wonderful news but it's secret for three weeks and I was thinking well who who would I tell <laughs> I don't know I mean, it's like I don't I, I went for a walk you know on my own to sort of celebrate oh, right. it it was such a strange thing and I came back and you know i I'm not like a big drinker and I would never drink alone. So it's like, well, I don't, I don't, do I, I don't know. What do I do? It's like, yay. (laughs) Just sat there (laughs) feeling really pleased. And then it was so weird because obviously it felt both like the world was ending. And also I had this incredible, wonderful secret that I couldn't share with anyone. And so eventually I cracked, I probably shouldn't admit to this on record. I cracked and rang my mom because I knew she would keep it secret and I knew she'd be really happy i going to leak it to the sun. Um, no, I, yeah, good point. But <laughs> they're 500 quid. <laughs> oh my God, once it was made public, which I think went out on front row, I was trying to explain to my mom that keeping a sort of safe distance from people didn't mean stopping strangers in the street to tell them that I've been shortlisted for the women's prize. But I'm pretty sure that's what she was doing. please don't get COVID because you're a proud mother. This is not the answer that anyone wants. So, <laughs> but yeah, it was very. I mean, and then the prize was delayed, of course, right oh, yeah. into September. So it was sort of strangely lovely that I got to be on the shortlist for I don't know, nearly six you. months. Milk so it. yeah, no, I I loved it. I just loved it. It was such a nice feeling, and obviously, you know, it meant that lots and lots of people read Ships who otherwise wouldn't have done. Yeah, the Women's Prize totally changed
1: my career. It's funny you mention um, that sort of humbleness. I remember Ruth. Going up on that stage and just saying, I never win things. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I never win things that she, <laughs> she truly meant yeah, it. Which we want that. it back. Yeah. <laughs> in some kind of accounting era. Yeah, she was like, if I do I don't mean, I don't. And I remember in her acceptance speech as well, she said, Now more than ever, this is a time that we need to rewrite the dominant narratives yes. that have landed us into quite dire straits. And I imagine that you are pretty aligned to her sentiment yeah absolutely um, why now for you I, I think
0: it's kind of what i've always done except for a while there wasn't a market for it so when i wrote the children of jocasta i think the only female-centric greek retelling i'd read was margaret atwood's penelope which came out in the 2000s i think um so it was a, lo- a lot earlier it's very short and uh, brilliant book it's sort of timeless, you know, that her version of Penelope is in the underworld and she has this kind of... I She's sort of Dorothy Parker-esque. She's really sort of snarky and it doesn't feel like it's sort of aiming to be ancient Greek-esque, but it, it's just a totally timeless, brilliant piece of writing. And so when I wrote Jocasta, which came out in 2017, so I guess we were trying to sell it in 2016, but I, yeah, no one was interested. Absolutely no one was interested. And when I say no one was interested, I don't mean, you know, in a sort of, oh, poor me, everyone didn't get back to me straight away. I mean, I had to change agents and publishers over it because no one was interested. And then by the time I brought Stoneblind out in 2022, people were like, why are so many people doing Greek myth retails? I don't know, I was doing it ages ago. Shut up, it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> what my stupid I like, oh, Wait, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I I think probably there are two things in play. The first is that it's a lot easier for readers to contact publishers, not necessarily, you know, here's a sternly worded green letter, but readers are making their preferences much clearer, basically because social media exists because of Instagram, because of TikTok. There are stacks of readers, especially there are stacks of young women readers. And there always were. I was one, you were one. But publishers were bringing out the books that they thought book buyers, whoever they might be, wanted. And we were right there going, I'm actually really interested. Oh, never mind, doesn't matter. Because there was no way of of registering that interest. I wrote Jocasta because I wanted to read a version of the Oedipus story that focused on the women. Jocasta in the Sophocles play, Oedipus Tyrannus, Oedipus the King, has 120 lines. And it's like, well, I'm not saying that, that I don't want the focus to focus on Oedipus in that play. It's the most perfectly structured tragedy to exist, I think, probably. But... I still want to know what happens to her. What about her? Excuse me, I have a question. And Ismene, who is the narrator of half of that book, the younger daughter of Jocasta. She has 60 lines in Sophocles' Antigone, so half as many. I mean, it's just... These are such marginalised characters. And I thought, well, you know, I've seen a version of Oedipus the King where he, in the second act which they inserted, obviously. They did the story the way you expect it. Kills his father, marries his mother. And then in the second act, they said, well, what happens if we go back to the point where he kills his father and, the, and he doesn't kill him? What happens if they have a conversation? What happens if they find out who they are? And it, it survived that. So I thought, well, it can probably survive me. <laughs> it's a really old myth. It's done fine. All the other myths will still exist. It hasn't got, like, terrifying fan bros, so that's all right. So I thought, well, I'll try, and it was okay. And then I thought with ships, you know, there were so many... Euripides plays which focus on women of the eight Euripides plays about the Trojan War seven of them have women as title characters and I thought I want to tell the story of the whole war like this I want to write a kind of epic narrative and see see what happens when you take this entire war narrative and only look at the women's stories from the sort of edges and so I guess I thought it was overdue, and that's the other thing. There's this swelling of interest in it from readers, but also there's, certainly from my perspective, lucky thing, which is that for so long classics was a male preserve, and classicists were an almost entirely male group with a few kind of incredible women also managing to study it, but certainly there was nothing like half or anything as deviant as equality. And so those stories just haven't been told the stories that were being told even when you have female authors writing about the ancient world like mary Renault, she focuses on male heroes or poets simonides and the praise singer and so it it was just good luck really it's like oh great if no one's if no one's writing about women in these stories i'm really interested in women in these stories and so was euripides so was ovid (laughs) you know this isn't a, a modern idea but no one else is doing it let's do it so i thought i would
1: Well, on the subject of amplifying women's voices and also filling in those gaps your fourth bookshelf book is if not winter Fragments of sappho by yes. Anne carson published in 2003 no this it trans- wasn't that can't be true oh no how is that Time, possible it, it flies <laughs> when you fun this translation of the ancient greek poet sappho's work pieces together her poems through the fragments we talked about this just before the tiny fragments that remain of them she's said to have written nine books of lyrics but only one complete poem has survived and carson doesn't try and fill in the gaps per se between the missing lines instead she leaves them open as white space and brackets saying i like to think that the more i stand out of the way the more sappho shows through tell us about this book and why sappho's work is so important so sappho is an incredibly opaque figure
0: no matter how you try to interrogate her it's really really hard I made an episode of Natalie Haynes up for the classics about her a few years ago now and those shows are 28 minutes long and I had gone through all the things we definitely know about Sappho By minute two. The rest of it is all just
1: hokey cokey. Um,
0: (laughs) Because, you know, we have biographical details, but they're largely invented um, by men later on. Um, So, Ovid, for example, includes her in his Heroides, and the Heroides are a set of utterly wonderful letters um, from the women of Greek myth to their absent menfolk. And I feel very close to these poems because. I have always really mocked Pliny for the fact that when Vesuvius erupted, he stayed at home and read Livy, um, which is how he survived it, and his uncle, Pliny the Elder, didn't. Um, but when it felt like the world was ending and everything closed in 2020, I thought, maybe I'll translate an Ovid poem every week and make a video for people. I am him. How's this happened? So <laughs> I made a series of videos about the Heroides called Ovid, Not Covid, and every week I would translate a Latin poem and every week I'd make a little film about this heroine or that heroine. The first one is Penelope writing to, well, Ulysses because it's Ovid, so he it's Latin, but Odysseus in Greek. And so I already I kind of felt like I was in these poems and I, I still didn't remember until I got there practically that the last of them, there's 15, uh, and then there's three paired sets, is Sappho. As though she were a woman of myth, herself and his version of her has her you know declaring her love for the has abandoned her a boatman called Fion I think and he's utterly gorgeous and it's like there's loads of things wrong with this you know Not least the fact that Sappho is, you know, traumatised over over, over a handsome young man leaving her because he satisfied her in a way that women never have. And you're like, Ovid, come on, sort it out. But, you know, that's one of the many difficulties with Sappho is because our ancient sources obviously had far more of her poetry than we do to look at. But some of the fragments are just a single word. Some are just a couple of words. You know, it's so difficult trying to find out who she is. And because she was so brilliant... In ancient times this this isn't a modern construct to suggest that she shouldn't be included among the nine great lyric poets of whom she is you'll be unsurprised here the only woman but she should instead be considered the tenth muse and one of the reasons i find this really interesting is because it's one of those ways in which misogyny is really hard to call out because it looks like a compliment it definitely isn't you know it's like well she's too good to be a poet it sounds so nice she must be a goddess it's like a real woman. so yeah exactly so she can't be real so other women couldn't do this is what you're saying and it's like well sure other women can't be sappho there was only sappho who could be sappho but the idea that there's somehow something inhuman about it really troubles me that when women are good at something they've somehow cheated by being you know partly divine it's like mm, yeah so i i have been reading Sappho since I was at school and she was valued hugely in in ancient times. Catullus, who is a Roman poet from the first century BC, translates one of her or adapts one of her poems from Greek into Latin. It begins in English, it begins, the man who sits opposite you seems to me to be like a god because he gets to, you know, feast his eyes on this extraordinary and beautiful woman. But the truth is that Sappho both is and and always will be, incredibly opaque to us. It's really, really hard to know when you read the fragments that we have, whether these are poems in her own voice or whether they're poems she's putting in someone else's voice. It's hard to know know, what these poems were for. People would certainly have commissioned her to write poems like wedding songs and things like that, or almost certainly, I should say. So are, are these poems in her voice when she talks about women or when she talks about men? I don't know, and nor does anyone, and that is why she is an ongoing mystery. If you were going to be stuck on a desert island with anyone, then the work of Sappho wouldn't be a bad place to start. I think it
1: would keep you busy for ages. I do just want to pick up on one thing, um, because you mentioned there about uh, discussing it on on the radio, in your stand-up show, signs up for classics. Entering the world of comedy... Yes. (laughs) ...but coming at it in uh, from this approach yes like unique approach um and presumably through footlights at yep. cambridge but i didn't do any material about classics until right. i wrote
0: ancient guide to modern life which was 2010 all my stand-up my whole stand-up career um which is about was about 10 or 12 years long i guess i did edinburgh in two thousand, two, three, four, five, six. two three four five six um but I, you you would have gone a long time waiting for a
1: joke waiting for a About joke something around. in the ancient world yeah. it, was... it wasn't
0: really something I could get away with on the circuit
1: In the 1990s and early maybe, noughties Maybe that journey from, from Cambridge Classics Graduate through foot, Footlights To the first ever woman nominated for Best Newcomer Perry Award at Edinburgh Yeah, Tell me a little bit about the comedy circuit Why do you say right now I couldn't have made one of those jokes then Why did you feel that way? How were you treated? It was a very misogynistic
0: world And in a way it sort of seems worse now looking back on it because now we know better if you
1: see what I mean. Oh a lot of things Um, we're looking back on now especially in comedy and thinking we really just accepted that.
0: Yeah we really really did and so yeah I I graduated in 96 so I was on the circuit from 97 really until I quit touring in 2007. So I'd been doing open spots before while I was still at at university but not many because I was still learning how to do it but you know, comedy clubs were an absolutely raucous place to be anyone and certainly to be a woman. We were about a tenth, I think. And you would never be on a bill with other women. You know, if there was more than one woman on a bill, the joke used to go, it must be International Women's Day. And that was not really a joke. I remember being told by a booker when he was offering me a date. I was probably getting, I don't know, 20 pounds or something to do 10 minutes. And I said, oh, could I come on this day Because I've got another gig like the day before so i could come to london for that and then i'd only have to pay one train for it so broke in those days and he said oh yeah no sorry natalie we've got another special act on that night and a special act for those of you not fully au fait with the language of vaudeville is a speciality act so wow. that's like a, a magician or yeah. someone with a guitar or a woman <laughs> yeah okay i'm just i'll just be taking my speciality uterus over there <laughs> If that's <laughs> all right with everyone. So it was just like that, and it it honestly didn't occur to me that it it, it could be different from that. When I left comedy, and you know well over a decade after I'd started, women were still about ten percent. And again, it's changed so much since then. There's much less of it than there was in those days. You know a lot more more people prefer to get their comedy on places like YouTube, and you know that's fair enough. but it it has been really strange, looking back over the last few weeks and thinking how. Mainly I just think I was so brave in my 20s and now if, I don't know how my parents, I mean they they certainly were traumatised when I went into stand up and at the time I thought why can't they just support me and now I think I don't know how they didn't lock me up in a tower. I'd have been like don't go out and do that, it'll be really frightening and I always feel really happy that I was a comedian because it's given me the superpower of being able to go out and talk about my books anywhere You know, I can tour each book. I have the radio series, which has built my audience hugely. I love performing. But when I look back now on the life I had to lead in order to be
1: where I am, there are times when I'm surprised (laughs) that it all worked out. It's time to talk about your fifth and final book today, which is The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa. This Japanese science fiction novel is a haunting fable about an island where disappearance is a way of life. Things constantly vanish or are removed by the memory police. And once something is missing, it no longer has any meaning. Hailed as a masterpiece, this dystopian tale is a meditation on loss of identity and the transience of the self. How did this book affect you? What questions did it raise for you? Well, many, not least because I think it was published
0: in Japan in the mid-90s. I think it was 95, maybe. But it wasn't translated into English and it wasn't available in the UK until, I think, 2020 or maybe 2019. So it had this incredibly long period, this long lag, which isn't that unusual in translated fiction or historically hasn't been that unusual in translated fiction. There's more of a market for it now. And so when I read it, I thought it was for want of a better word, new, And it was like, even by the standards of now, it felt incredibly prescient. And then to discover that it was already 25 <laughs> yeah. years old, you're yeah. like, what? Who are you? How did you do that? And so, I mean, it's just an extraordinary and really haunting book, not least because, as you say, things disappear and they're sort of outlawed, but like really ordinary things like you know cups or books or just ordinary prosaic everyday things and they're just sort of ruled by a force that we can't explain they're just decided to now not exist anymore and people then develop it's so brilliantly done then develop a sort of firstly they feel really worried that they're not going to be able to have the things that they are used to and then they develop a sort of horror like a aversion to the and there are sort of you know group burnings of them and people destroy them they're like oh oh, oh." and then the things just sort of disappear and then the words for them disappear the references to them disappear the person that we're following in this story is a novelist and so she is used to be able to capture the world with words and then suddenly that's not really an option anymore and a few people on this island where she lives, retain memory of the lost objects. And that includes our narrator's editor, but also includes her mother. And so they are trying to kind of squirrel away examples of things which are then removed in secret places, but it's extremely dangerous. The memory police are extremely frightening, a really oppressive authoritarian force. And so we have this character who can't find the words or place these things in her mind she can sort of half find them but not quite because they're gone and yet she has these two poles um her editor who they have to hide and her mother who can remember it's such an extraordinary story i think they're adapting it as a film and it's one of those things where you think i don't know whether i'm happy or afraid at this point yeah because (laughs) it's it seems to me the world of interiority for want of a less pretentious sounding word is so intense in this novel you know you're so in her head and in her world and how you think and how you describe things to yourself it's such an integral part of it and it's really hard to imagine any other form than the
1: novel capturing that quite as as beautifully do other novels ever influence your own writing whether intentionally or subconsciously
0: I mean I think subconsciously everything you read probably does at some level I would say the most influential piece of writing for what I've ended up doing and it took a long time for it to sink in is probably a short story by Borges called The House of Asterion and in The House of Asterion it's a really short story and I'm sorry that I'm about to spoil it for you if you haven't read it I can't recommend enough that you currently pause, go away and read it, and then come back. It will honestly only take you 10 minutes. No, 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 but, go, go, now. But, yeah, shoo, <laughs> come back. Okay, so the House just a few pages long, and it follows Theseus as he goes into the labyrinth to kill the Minotaur, except it doesn't, because it tells the story from the perspective of this terrified, desperately lonely, aching-for-company Minotaur, at the center of the maze and so at the final moment he's so desperate for someone to talk to to see just anything and then in the final moment the story flips and Theseus comes out of the labyrinth and he says to Ariadne who's the half-sister of the of Asterion which is the name of the Minotaur although people don't often remember he says would you believe it you know he didn't even put up a fight and it's just brilliant You're like, oh my god you know the monster isn't the monster the monster is the victim are you kidding me and then at the last minute that switch in focus i fully and deliberately stole slash paid homage to in the Penthesilea chapter in a thousand ships where at the very end of that scene it flips to achilles perspective it's the only time in the whole book that you see anything from a man's point of view and he suddenly realizes that she was the amazon queen rather than another man on the battlefield and that was because i I've realised that I needed to say somewhere in my work, thank you. Borges is an absolute card-carrying genius. I just love him. But, yeah, the the way that he can take these tiny, tiny stories, the Secret Miracle, it's like three pages long, and I literally gasped the first time I read it. It was like, oh, Like that. Yeah, so, so,
1: yeah, him for sure. He isn't one of your five books a day it is not but my final question to you Natalie is if you had to choose one book from your list yep as a favourite which would it be Sappho and what okay easy Sappho I would pick Sappho
0: because firstly the Greek is manageable but quite difficult so I spend a lot of time thinking about language if I'd only got one book I would really want to spend a good year or two thinking about the Greek yep and then there are the gaps and what would go in the gaps and that would occupy me for probably you know 30 years and then
1: Mm. I that I could think about the poetry well you've given us all lots to think about today some absolutely stunning selections and it's just been an absolute pleasure to chat to you um, and I'm going to take up kickboxing as well good now. come I'm to inspired. the dojo come on I'm um, coming good thank you so much and best of luck with any book as well thank you I'm Vic Hope and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.